Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that definitely, definitely has over 100,000 listeners a day, as long as you include all the listeners this show could have if more people listen to it. I'm Tin and Yeben as Health Secretary and a face you made on your plate using only vegetables, Matt Hancock, announces the brand new coronavirus track and trace app. I feel he's missing a trick by not making it only available to those on 5G networks. Yes, it's been a week of achievements for the government. If you remember that they usually consider anything that gives them a chance to avoid blame for something an achievement. Firstly, within one day of returning to number 10, the Prime Minister and lumbering ball of congealed pith, Boris Johnson, became a dad for the seven millionth time, as his fiancée gave birth to their son, who they've named Wilfred, probably after the boy in the Bash Street Kids comic strip in the Beano who had a jumper pulled over his mouth, which is no doubt due to a lack of PPE. His full name is Wilfred Laurie Nicholas Johnson. Laurie is a name of Scottish origin, meaning crafty, so that's obviously after his dad, and Nicholas is after the two doctors that treated the PM when he was in ICU, because nothing will make them feel better than the honour of their name going to yet another child Boris will likely neglect as much as he does the NHS. It's impossible yet to say if Wilfred is his father's son, but he does have a mop of blonde hair, an inability to construct a proper sentence, and is savvy enough to know when to arrive just as his dad was running out of excuses to skive off work. Johnson said that he will take paternity leave later in the year, as right now he wants to focus on leading the government's response to coronavirus, proving that he hates being a dad so much it's the only thing that he'd go to a Cobra meeting in order to avoid doing. In an interview with The Worst Thing He Could Do to Paper, The Sun on Sunday, Johnson revealed that while he was in ICU, he feared never ever meeting Wilfred, which would have been awful for his son never getting to see his dad, as that would make him just like all of Boris's other children. But apparently it was his baby that gave the Prime Minister the strength to pull through, which means sadly, while I think children are blameless for all the world's ills, little Wilfred is going to have to live with that one forever. Thanks very much, Wilf. Just as Johnson Offspring 7005 appeared in the world, the Prime Minister also got to announce that boom, the UK is past the peak, which I guess means it's now all downhill from here. Apparently, as he said, the end of the virus is in sight. It's like coming out of a huge alpine tunnel and we can now see the sunlight and pasture before us. A pasture that's had to be turned into an extra graveyard as while he was off-piste an awful lot of people died. Yes, the UK now has the second highest amount of deaths in Europe, but as Foreign Secretary and extra in the series Chernobyl, Dominic Raab says, now is not the time to do global comparisons, which he said during the daily press briefings where they always show a global comparison chart. Other countries don't have the same level of reporting deaths apparently, meaning they might even have included those that happened in care homes from the very start, rather than only from last week once everyone had complained about it like the UK did. It's okay though, because we're focused on getting the R down, as Matt Hancock keeps saying, as though it's a really bad R&B song where R stands for a swear word he's too prudish to sing. R actually stands for reproduction, which is why Johnson so far can't really understand why people want to stop it. How do you get the R down? Well, testing helps, which is lucky, as last week the government finally hit their target of 100,000 tests in a day by the end of April. 
How did they do it? Was it 100,000 including existing tests that had happened on a previous day that happened to have the same first letter? Was it 100,000 tests but not all of them were tests for COVID-19? Some were pregnancy. There was at least two driving and one SAT. No, you cynic, have a bit more faith in the government than that. It's because 40,000 tests were sent out but not necessarily done, so they count as done. Brilliant. That means next time I do a live show, I can consider tickets sold by the amount of people who took a flyer and then might have put it in the bin. Their pledge was only to get 100,000 tests a day by the end of April, and now they've done that and it's May, they don't have to bother anymore, right? That's how it works. I mean, otherwise, how would you explain far fewer tests every day since? (laughs) Silly me. I can't expect the Department of Health to understand how numbers actually work. When BBC's Panorama revealed that when they said they'd given a billion pieces of personal protective equipment to the NHS, they'd actually counted each glove in a pair individually to add up the numbers. Individual gloves? Who did they think was treating patients? Michael Jackson? In some cases, individual antiseptic wipes were counted rather than the pack. Individual antiseptic wipes? Who do they think was treating patients? Prince? You have to remember these numbers aren't wrong. They're just not quite what we expected them to be and maybe that's our fault for not buying gloves one at a time or failing to take credit for all those jobs you applied for but never heard back from so we're clearly successful in. You'd think that if the government's method is as soon as it's left them, then it's done, then Johnson would be parading around boasting that he has at least 100,000 kids, including all the times he's spaffed somewhere outside of his trousers. Matt Hancock's new test, track and trace app should help, despite sounding like it's a misjudged idea by a team from The Apprentice designed to make stalking fun. So far, the app has failed all clinical safety and cybersecurity tests, making it very much on brand with every app Matt Hancock has ever been part of, including the Matt Hancock MP app, which was notoriously riddled with more bugs than Daffy Duck's nether regions. Then there was the Conservative Party conference app that anyone could hack into and get every user's private phone numbers from, with party security pretending it was an error rather than a necessary function for them to carry out their post-conference partner-swapping cocaine orgies where they all pretend they're poor and get off on it. Still, what that should mean is that the Track and Trace app opens up all the data of everyone that uses it, including any coronavirus symptoms, and then we can all join and collectively play a very scary game of nationwide tag. It's being tested in the Isle of Wight, which is a strange place for any tracking app, as there's only really two main roads, so you'd probably get a pretty accurate and far cheaper tracking system just using a pair of binoculars or asking all the curtain switches about their neighbours. Numbers of people in hospital with coronavirus is falling and at the time of recording, the daily death toll is the lowest it's ever been. So that means all anyone wants to know is, when can we go outside and lick people till it all kicks off again? Well, the Prime Minister will be revealing full plans this coming Sunday, but he said only a mass-produced vaccine will defeat the virus and he's urging countries to pull together to share their expertise. You know, like how they tried to share ventilators, but Johnson's team seemed happier to give loads of money to arms manufacturers to make things so unsuited to help people breathe, they're probably now reselling them to Saudi Arabia to use in Yemen as weapons. The PM's speech will be at an online pledging conference set up by the EU, meaning that Johnson will probably just inappropriately shout about unleashing Britain's potential, causing everyone to shut their borders with us for good. I mean, that's if he turns up at all. He's actually expected to say that a vaccine is the only way to win this battle and build an impregnable shield around all our people, which again makes it very hard to know if he's talking about the virus or if it's his inner monologue screaming for help. Chancellor of the Duchy in an accident involving a giant cyst and a treadmill, Michael Gove, keeps referring to how the government are preparing for the UK to return to a new normal, like the beginning of a Twilight Zone episode where everyone removes their face masks to reveal how they now look like him. A tweet from Gove's wife and the only person to make a career from poison pen letters, Sarah Vine, showed their bookshelf at home which contained both a novel by a Holocaust denier and The Bell Curve, a eugenics book that infamously states that white people are smarter than black people. Of course, it's unlikely any books on Gove's shelves say anything about him, as chances are he's not read a single one and just uses them to point at Daly and shout, I'm tired of experts, before attempting DIY based on a vision he had and nailing his leg to a radiator. But you do have to wonder that when he owns books like that, is Gove's idea of a new normal, much like the old normal, but depressingly even whiter than white. While nothing's been confirmed, possible post-lockdown workplace restrictions could include additional hygiene procedures and social distancing where possible, which would likely make a lot more places nicer to work for many, especially women in Parliament. There is talk of schools going back in June, but the National Education Union has set up its own five tests that it's saying the country needs to pass before that can happen. And to be honest, if anyone knows about doing well in tests, it would be them. 
What about the over 70s? We're told to stay in lockdown for at least 12 weeks regardless. Well, Matt Hancock tweeted that actually that's factually wrong and misleading and it's only the clinically vulnerable, not all over 70s, look at government advice. Which if you look at, says the clinically vulnerable includes all over 70s regardless of medical conditions. But then maybe Hancock is treating this like the tests and that actually once you get into your 80s, you're no longer an over 70 so you can go outside again. But we'll have to wait a week more of lockdown before we can really find out what any of these plans are, or more likely are not. And while everyone is hankering at finding out just when the lockdown will end, no one has asked just how the government planned to persuade the 6.3 million workers who've been furloughed that they should look forward to working again. Though if schools don't open for a while, there'll be a whole heap of parents willing to do almost anything else. In other news, MP and perpetual heat rash Connor Burns has resigned as a trade minister after a report found he used his position to intimidate a member of the public. And no, not just by threatening to read aloud from last year's The Conservative Manifesto or one of Michael Gove's novels. Instead, in a loan repayment dispute involving his father, he threatened to use parliamentary privilege to further his family's interests, which just isn't allowed. Everyone knows the only way you can use your standing as an MP to affect your family's financial interests is by doing nothing about tax havens and being friends with lobbyists. Come on, Connor, catch up, mate. Lastly, with VE Day happening on Friday, still during lockdown, some councils have been suggesting a nationwide stay-at-home street party involving having a picnic in the front garden after watching Churchill's speech be repeated on TV. Never in my life have I been more pleased about not having a front garden. Howdy, howdy, let's get rowdy. Uh, Yes, that is my new way of greeting people. And by new, I mean one that I've said before. But anyway, look, basically I was reviewed in The Guardian this week for my part in Mark Watson's 24-hour show where I inhaled a vast amount of hot sauce for charity. And uh, the reviewer called me Laddish. I've never been called Laddish in my life. Uh, It's quite a surprise for me, really. So I've decided I should embrace it and now only do comedy about um, tits and football or something. I guess that's what lads talk about, isn't it? Lads, 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 lads. Maybe I should talk about beer as well. Lads probably do that. Tits, beer and football. Yeah. Anyway, I'll be pleased to leave this lockdown with a new laddish personality that will probably involve me getting a tattoo I regret and having sunburn only on my stomach, uh, which is probably where the tattoo is as well. But anyway, uh, it's exciting. And that was my weekend. Um, As Mark Watson did a brilliant 24-hour show and raised just about 40 grand for three charities, um, you can still watch it all on his Twitch channel, twitch.tv forward slash Watson Comedy, and still donate too. Um, And I popped in for a brief amount of time uh, to officiate a game between a puppet cactus and a CBBC presenter uh, the brilliant Ed Petrie and Outro the Puppet and then later uh, down spoonfuls of sauce containing Caroline Reaper chilli um, I'd love to pretend that that's what the lockdown's done to me but let's face it I'd have done that live to be honest uh, I just now have to display my desperate needs for gratification in my own home which is far more embarrassing um, but hey it raised money it raised money my stomach made sounds that I should have recorded for science uh, they were very strange but I'm okay and I didn't spontaneously combust so it's a win um I'm not sure I'm fully on board with online gigs yet, I'll be honest. I used to use the journey to gigs to get my head into my set and work on ideas, think about sort of offshoots of jokes and extra bits, think about how to start the set. And now I'm just in my pyjamas and I sit at a computer and I can only tell if people are laughing or clapping by the emojis they use, which are often the same ones I use if I'm being sarcastic about something on Twitter. Uh, It's looking like theatres aren't set to restart till at least next year, so I'm assuming comedy won't happen live either. Um, Live as in in your face in the same room. So I guess I'm going to have to get used to it. Unless any of you fancy paying me so I can stand outside your window and shout jokes at you from the street. Uh, Or maybe I perform in a venue, but you all watch from screens at home and I can see your faces on iPads placed in chairs as I tell jokes and look at you checking your phones or wandering off. Um... Yeah, it does sort of beg the question of what us comedians and performers should do for a year as, uh, actually, I'm just speaking for myself, I've got absolutely no other skills. No, I'm not sure about this new normal at all. I I do like this phrase going around of there can be no return to normal because normal was the problem to begin with. And I agree. And normal is the most boring as well. I mean, I think we need a new without the normal bit and maybe we can just all leave this lockdown with newfound abilities to... um, I don't know, you know, sort of make our own yeast or bread or whatever the fuck it is everyone's doing. And, and we all go to meetings in our pyjamas and with haircuts we ruined by ourselves. Oh, you have to dream, don't you? You have to dream. What am I on about? I have no idea. I just really need to talk to adults again. And I think I would actually murder someone for a freshly poured pint, which, judging by some suggestions, might be the only way to get into a pub before 2021. Um, anyway, you're here and I appreciate that as always. 
thank you for all the nice comments you gave about the interview with Hope Lonergan last week, um, which I passed on to him, and he was very chuffed. Uh, he's also released a podcast where he chats to one of the 98-year-old patients at one of the care homes he used to work at, uh, which is such a lovely listen, so I'll pop that in the pod blurb for this week's show too. Um, big thank you, Times, also to Christine James Doug, somebody and Anonymous for your Kofi donations this week. And if you too can spare a few quid towards this show or towards me having no income stream uh, until some point next year, if I'm lucky, uh, then please head to Kofi, ko-fi.com forward slash bro, where you can sign up for recurring monthly donations of even just a few quid, or patreon.com forward slash bro, where you can sign up for uh, less than a few quid, as it's in US dollars, and America's totally fucked right now, so all their money's like piss. Uh, of course, if you can't donate, please do just give the podcast a review on any of those podcast apps where you can do that, or just tell a friend to subscribe. I mean, they don't even have to listen. They can just subscribe and then walk away. Oh, wait, they can't walk away. Oh, lockdown. Um, a quick few admin things this week. Uh, one is the absolutely brilliant charity Arts Emergency who supports so many young people. Um, they're launching a new appeal this Tuesday, so probably by the time you hear this, uh, they are looking for a minimum of 20 grand to expand existing community projects um, once this crisis ends uh, in order to support areas that may not receive help. Otherwise, um, I've probably said that very badly and missed important details, but basically head to arts-emergency.org after the 4th of May to have a look or find them on Twitter at Arts Emergency and I'll be arting all about it as well. Um, they are such a good and very, very necessary charity, so please do help me out if you can. And um, also, I'm on bloody loads of other podcasts this week because what else have I got to do? Parenting. Oh, yeah. And next week, um, as well, I'm going to be on some too. Um, but for now, uh, I'm on Jason Reed's Excellent So I Start a Revolution from My Bed podcast, all about ways to chill out. And that, uh, do have a listen, and he gets very upset about how I eat porridge. Um, and then I say a few lines on the lovely Andy Case's Monsoon Jackson podcast series two that starts this week. Um, it's got some brilliant, brilliant guests on it. I think Reg Hunter does the intro for this week's, and Suze Kemp is on one. There's lots of good people. Um, and I'm also going to be on Nathan Caton's Give Me Some Good News podcast, uh, which I'm recording tomorrow. Um, and that, which, much like it says on the tin, is all about good news. Um, so do check those out too. Right, on this week's show, uh, there are two interviews. Yes, two, changing it up and mixing it about. That's right, lockdown crazy. Um, one is with a former COVID-19 111 call centre worker who was made redundant in the middle of all this crisis, uh, which is properly shitty. Uh, and she was very kind enough to talk to me about it anonymously. Um, so that's really interesting and a bit bleak at times. Um, and the other is with the brilliant German Norden, who is an anatomical pathology technician and works in the NHS mortuary and weirdly isn't bleak at all and is quite upbeat and and, uh, there's a lot of chat about cake. Who knows? Uh, times are strange. Plus, there is a bit about tests that aren't really tests, so go on, get all of that in your brain. Hurry up. <laughs> If you're between the ages of probably 18 to 40-ish, uh, chances are you've spent at least a chunk of your life in a call centre, learning mostly how to restrain yourself from shouting, oh, fuck off, down the line at least 15 times a day. I worked in one for a housing association and I'd have had about as much fun being trapped in a windowless room with an angry barking dog. But while call centre workers have a lot of hang-ups at the best of times, uh, including zero-hours contracts, low wages and generally being a barking wolf for angry callers, welcome to the now times where, on top of all that, you're expected to keep to the script even if your bosses can't be bothered. Not only are there several reports of call centre workers being told to come into a workplace with no social distancing measures, but right now it appears even if you're working for essential services, there's no job security whatsoever. It's pretty galling when you work for a service like 111, in place to give advice, reassurance and security to many, but there's absolutely none of that for you at your end of the call. The first of two interviews this week is a bit different from normal, as for a start, I can't tell you the interviewee's name. Uh, for the sake of this, I'll give him a fake name, uh, which I thought, because fake names are always really boring, aren't they? Like Joan Doe or John Doe or whatever. And I thought, well, Sorry to Bother You is a good film set in a call centre. And the lead uh, in that is called Detroit. So that's a bit more interesting than, you know, calling a Corley McCallison or something. Uh, anyway, Detroit. That really doesn't work, does it? It sounds weird. Anyway, um, she worked in a 111 call centre on the coronavirus-specific calls until she was made redundant, along with many other staff in the middle of the pandemic, unable to apply for any government cover packages and with absolutely no support at all. Uh, a friend pointed me in the direction of a post uh, Detroit had done on social media, and I got in touch with her to see if she'd be happy anonymously letting me interview her. Yes, it's almost like proper journalism or something. Anyway, uh, what happened to her is really shitty to say the least and depressing to know that so many workers are still being entirely neglected in this time of crisis, as well as just how unprepared and badly trained those on the front line for people's concerns actually are. Do have a listen. It's very revealing stuff. Here you go. 
Okay, thank you so much uh, for talking to me um, today. And I, we're speaking on, on May Day, which, uh, as, as you mentioned before we started recording, it's, it's the day of workers' rights, so it feels incredibly appropriate that we're having this conversation. Um, I wonder if you could tell me how, what the job was that you were doing um, until very recently and uh, what you had to do in that job. Yeah, so basically um, we were, our official job title was 111 call coordinator and basically we're there to kind of spread the load. Um, the regular 111 call handlers were getting a bit overwhelmed with just the volume of COVID calls coming in. So basically um, the way they've done it is that when you call 111, you'll hear a voice message and one of, um, one of the things they say will be, if you are calling about coronavirus, please press one and that diverts it away from the regular 111 trainers to just the COVID call handlers and then from then on we kind of triage or we uh, provide help with isolation notes help with self-isolation advice um that sort of thing and of course like depending on the outcome of the triage um we might um we do things like send ambulances um get people to speak to clinicians that sort of thing was it very busy? I'm guessing you're probably getting quite a lot of calls. It was very busy at the start. Like when I, like my first day taking calls, literally at one point I had a bit of a break and I was worried that my phone was broken when it was actually just like a one minute break in the wow. calls. Um, yeah, so it was incredibly busy at the start, but we did see a significant drop um, about, I would say at the beginning of April, around Easter time, um, just got really, really, really quiet all of a sudden. Um, and as you can imagine, that was the main reason why um, so many of us, the vast majority of us, were um, made redundant. Right, which is what I was going to ask you next, because you were yeah. suddenly and quite quickly made redundant. And um, was that entirely, do you think, down to just suddenly calls stopping? I, I would say so. It was one of those things where basically for um the first couple of days were incredibly busy and then kind of towards the end of my first week there it started dropping and by the end of my second week there like each call handler was getting maybe five six calls in a six hour shift so only one call per hour um and i guess when they hired about 50 odd people to handle it i think they just kind of accidentally either hired too many people or yeah i mean so it, it, in terms of calls dropping, I suppose it makes sense they didn't need as many staff. But I, I, did you know that you were on a on a contract that could be terminated so quickly? To be honest, I, I didn't. The way the way, um, the way it happened was that when I spoke to the recruiter, um, they had implied that it was at least a part time position. Um, Looking back, they never actually said it. The way they worded it wasn't along the lines of like, "Oh, would you like um, how many hours a week would you like to work." which didn't imply that they were contractually obligated to give me that many hours a week. Um, but no, I didn't realise I was on a zero-hour contract until like day two of me working there when I received my contract. And it said, oh, by the way, zero-hour contracts, we're not legally um, obliged to give you a set number of hours a week, but you are obliged to work a certain number of hours a week if we tell you to. So, and you didn't find out that until the second day you were working there? Hmm. Yeah, I guess because the recruitment process was um, not rushed, but it was a lot quicker than they'd normally do it. We, I started without a contract and I got my contract on my second day of work. Wow. And I mean, yeah. that must have left you in a really tricky position. I mean, it's it's not exactly the sort of time right now that you can just go and get a new job. No, absolutely not. And again, it was one of those things where even when I found out it was a zero contract, I what else could I do? Like, I would still rather work than not have any work. So it's not like I was in a position to um, negotiate or argue about it, yeah. And, and um, you know, having work that short, I'm guessing you don't apply for any of the benefits or any of the kind of cover that, that workers get when they've been in a job a longer time or, you know, you don't come under absolutely any of the categories that no. are being supported. No, absolutely not. Um, and me personally... Um, because of the visa that I'm on, I'm not eligible for any government support. Uh, I have no access to public funds. I can't apply for universal credit, even if I was if I wanted to. Um, so no, absolutely nothing. Yeah. So how 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 are you coping? I mean, it's got to be. It's that's really tough. It is incredibly difficult. Um, 
so um, luckily for me, I managed to get a part-time training position um, at the company, um, which again, because um, they can, basically they can terminate, uh, now that I'm reading contracts way ahead of time, um, they can still terminate my um, position with without any notice within six months of me starting. Um, but that's it's, how, how many? It's difficult, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, so, sorry to interrupt you there. I, I um, I just was curious. You, you said there were a number of you that were made redundant at the same time. Yes. So um, I don't have. I don't know the the exact number, but basically, um, they hired between fifty to seventy people, if I'm not mistaken, for the um, COVID helpline. Um, and as far as I know, um, basically everyone who wasn't already on a training course that was about to start was made redundant. But I guess the other issue as well is that there was no formal communication about the training course. Basically, you just had to be at the right place at the right time or know the right people to know that you were eligible for the training course to be a permanent um, one-on-one core handler. Um, There was no mention of it during training. There was no mention, there was no email circulated saying that, hey, you are eligible to do this. by the time I found out from a, um, a friend at the call centre, it was a bit late and it was a bit, yeah. That's so massively unprofessional. And, and I mean, I, obviously <laughs> yeah. this isn't, I should say this isn't through the NHS, it's, it's through a company, isn't it, that, that supplies this to the NHS? Yeah, so basically um, I'm not 100% sure, but there are uh, some, if not all, of the one-on-one call centres around the UK are actually private companies um, with NHS contracts and not actually NHS. Um, yeah. And did you feel that, you know, that this, the places you were working for, were they kind of, considering our current situation, were they following NHS guidelines on social distancing? We've had a news story recently about a lot of workers in one of these call centres all contracting COVID-19 because they've all sat very close to each other uh, in these rather large call centres? I would say that for the vast majority, I mean, again, I can't say for um, all of the call centres around the UK, but at the one that I worked at, um, I can say that for the, for the most part, there was there were social distancing measures in place. So we would always leave one, um, one workstation empty between um, everyone. Um, so we're always about two metres apart from the person sitting next to you. Um, we were we wiped down our workstation before and after each shift. Um, at the moment, um, basically, we can't use any mugs. Um, everything has to be disposable cups, disposable um, spoons, uh, disposable cutlery, that sort of thing. Um, whether or not that's actually being followed through by the individual or something else, like of course there's not, there's only so much that you can do. But I can I I can say that at the course and try work that there are some distancing measures in place, and sure. yeah, for me that that's not I don't think that's the actual problem here. Sure, sure, um, of course. I mean, I'm I'm guessing yeah. the fact that you have to travel in and and it, you know what what you're doing is is obviously essential work, so you have to travel yeah. in to do it anyway. Um, I wouldn't say that the other the, the thing is that, for example, the training course, I do believe that with some adjustments, they could definitely do it online. They could do it through Zoom. But for whatever reason, they've decided that, that that's not something that they can do, um, which, of course, means that people who are on public transport, for example, are catching the bus and kind of exposing themselves to more possible risks of infection that way um, when they could probably just do it from home. Yeah, it would make a lot more sense. Wouldn't yeah, it? It would make a lot more sense. And it's um, one of those things as well, where, for example, like if um, some of the pe- some of the people working there, um, if they've received the um, letter from the NHS saying that they need to self isolate for twelve weeks, they can work from home. Um, so, I guess my thing is like, if it is possible for people to work from home, then why aren't we making more people work from home? Like, if the capability is there, then why aren't we asking them to do it? Why is it that you have, like, it has to be, I don't know if it's making sense, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. The whole thing so far, I mean, you know, the way in which uh, you've been treated and the way in which they they haven't really planned about how to make this as safe as possible. It feels like it was all very hastily put together. And I mean, you know, I understand that obviously the situation has happened very quickly mm. and, and faster people um, can manage. But do, do you feel like more thought maybe should have gone into 
caring for the staff that, that are doing these jobs? I do think so. I do think that more care would put that would be possible. And again, um, yeah, for example, is it really necessary to hold these training courses in person? Is it really necessary for to have it's one of those things where if it was any other if it was any other call center um i forget what the wording is in terms of lockdown but it's one of those things where like you should we should work from home if possible or unless it isn't completely necessary and i do kind of feel like it is possible for more people to work from home and maybe have people work in shifts where they come into the um the office only once every other shift or if that makes sense i think it is possible i don't think they're doing everything they can to prevent it from spreading at the workplace. Well, and also, especially as you're on a job that, that is zero hours, that doesn't give you any um, support or safety whatsoever. No, absolutely not. Yeah. And again, uh, if I, um, yeah, if anything had happened to me at the moment, even though I'm no longer at the, I'm no longer working with the COVID helpline, they can let me go at any moment um, with no, yeah, there's no um, safety net for me. Oh, I'm so I'm so sorry to hear that. It, just sounds, <laughs> it sounds, you know, these times are stressful enough as it is. It is, yeah. Without being plunged into that when you're doing a job that, I mean, even with calls being down, what what you were doing sounds like it was, you know, it's it's an incredibly important job right now. Yeah, and I think, I think it's one of those things where um, it was quiet for a bit and it was really, really quiet for a bit even after they... Um, laid off quite a few people and now it is picking up and it's kind of one of those things where did they prematurely lay people off um should it's a public it's a public utility should we be basing that off of supply and demand when we know there might be another spike soon yeah it feels very naive incredibly naive mm. yeah yeah well so sorry so sorry that you're you're hopefully hopefully you might have a job soon where <laughs> hopefully just fast yeah you're going to be uh, okay, but very sorry that you had to go through this, really. Um, yeah, it's one of those really things, isn't it? I think my problem with this, a lot of this, is that we, you know, there's a lot out there about um, NHS heroes and, you know, showing support for the NHS, but are we really actually looking after the people who are working for the NHS, or are we saying these things to make us feel better about people you know, dying because of lack of PPE. Like, are we branding them heroes to make ourselves feel better that terrible things are happening to these workers? Yeah, I did see a, a very uh, sort of punchy tweet. I think it was it was a cartoon on Twitter, uh, just sort of saying that you know you call them that uh, we call them heroes because heroes die in a war, and mm. therefore it's sort of fine to make those sacrifices, and it, and it just covers up for the uh, the lack of support and safety that the workers were given in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh well. Well, thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> That's a bleak place to end it, isn't it? Um, I was gonna. Is there, is there anything I should have asked you? That, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't in that? I don't know. It's one of those things where I think the most interesting part was that. So on April fifteenth, I think, basically mid-April, we got our call audits. Um, it came back okay considering that we only had yeah we only had one day of training and it was in a classroom and then we had like an hour of listening to other people take calls and then they were kind of like pushed on the floor like good luck which now kind of now that I'm doing the actual one-on-one training course I realize we were severely undertrained. um I didn't know it at the time because I felt like well you know we're trying our best. This is what we've been, the training that we've, with the training we've been given, we are doing our best. But I do kind of feel like there is a bit of negligence there in terms of, I, I wouldn't like, now looking back, a lot of the things that I said on the phone, I wouldn't have said. And I know that I shouldn't have said that for various reasons. Um, for example, like we weren't told anything about not asking leading questions. Um, and we did have the support. We did have a safety net of having supervisors there, but I just, I do think that there is something there about um, we were just severely undertrained and there was we were kind of like pushed on to the floor to answer questions from people who you know may be dying um, with very little training to back us up. Um, yeah, I mean, especially with something that we know or uh, well knew and still don't know much about uh, right now. You know, is something that that's 
was so new to us, you, you'd have thought there'd be more precautions about how it is you, you deal with it and how you treat it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I think that was one thing that now looking back, I realised actually that was terrible. And apparently, I'm not 100% sure, but one of the groups, they had like three hours of training and then it was kind of like on the floor. Um, a normal one-on-one um, training course, the one that I'm currently doing is four to six weeks. Wow. Yeah, and to kind of push that on someone who's a lot of us you know, have never we don't, it's it's a non-clinical role anyway but we don't have any experience in this um and i think it is it's not only negligent to the people calling in but also the safety of the call handlers because if anything happens you know they could possibly go to court um, yeah i mean and also you know while you were dealing sort of specifically with covid19 calls people have other conditions that you might need to know about in order to relate how COVID-19 might affect that condition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in complex cases, we were told that we can always hand them over to um, someone more experienced. But how do we know where to draw that line when that training wasn't put in place? Um, So that was was one of my big concerns that now I realise as actually the huge um, red flag slash oversight from the company. Um, And I guess the other thing as well is that, so we had, um, I had my call audit um, mid-April and it came back okay, came back favorably. Um, the person doing the audit was like, oh, you know, if you do your training, it'll be great, blah, 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 blah. Um, I was signed on to the June training by that point because every other course before then was just completely full. Um, and again, um, so, and then I, uh, the next day, woke up at 5 a.m., got to work, um, got home and just as I got home I got an email saying as of 9 p.m that day we don't need you anymore and I guess my what I'm trying to say there is the timeline of starting work to getting positive feedback to getting laid off was so quick it was that's just, just not I how think you it, treat people I think that's it, not it, how you do yeah, things it highlights kind of like how disposable we really are uh, and how disposable you know the I guess the system or the company treats us. Um, it's pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah, that really is. That really is. So yeah. you had to go through that. That is uh, that is terrible. Well, very, very good luck. Very good luck to you for uh, <laughs> thank you. sorting yeah. things out. And uh, thank you so much for, for talking with me. No, thanks for having me. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thank you so much to um, oh, Detroit. I really regret that choice now um, for trusting this podcast with that. Um, it's really appreciated uh, that she spoke to me and the sort of situation we should be hearing more about rather than story after story about how the prime minister is still fertile. Uh, I really should have thought of a better name than Detroit, though, shouldn't I? That's really weird. Corley McCorlison would have been better. Anyway, uh, I obviously can't point you towards anywhere to follow her or anything like that. So do just check out the Open Democracy piece on call centres during all this that I've popped in the bio. And if any of you would like to help or support uh, Detroit, then get in touch with me and I will try and work out a safe way to sort that out. 
And there's another interview in a few minutes, but first, some of this. Over the weekend, Matt Hancock announced that the government had reached its target of over 100,000 tests a day by the end of April, with 122,347 tests carried out on the 30th. However, it doesn't take much of a close look to realise that in this instance, carried out means that someone had just physically removed the test kits from the building they were made in and not, as you might have assumed, used them to test on people yet. Sure, we're all very used to the government moving the goalposts on their own target so many times that they're no longer in a football pitch but acres and acres of inadequately netted fields, as the cabinet tell confused footy strikers that this is how the game always works, just keep punting it till no one cares anymore and stops asking questions. Remember when they replaced the methods for stats on child poverty so it's no longer based on income? Because as we all know, having no money doesn't make you poor, you can be completely deprived and wealthy as fuck, which is why Ian Duncan Smith is one of the most deprived people on earth. Sorry, no, sorry, I mean depraved. Or when employment figures suddenly included people on zero-hours contracts who hadn't worked for two weeks, because in that instance, you were working, just for the government's dodgy stats and no, they won't pay you for it. Just recently, we had the promise of 50,000 new nurses, which included 20,000 nurses that actually weren't new and were already working, and no, it doesn't count if they've had a haircut or put glasses or a fake moustache on for each and every shift. Alongside lying buses, other election promises that weren't achievable, and now, as BBC's Panorama revealed last week, pieces of PPE kits sent to hospitals being counted individually to add to the numbers. No, an individual antiseptic wipe isn't one piece of personal protective equipment, not even if you hang a single one off your genitals like a sterilised codpiece. Anyway, with all that in the past, this week's test targets are just the latest in a series that wasn't critically panned enough at the beginning, and so now they keep letting it run, assuming it must be popular. Much like the October 31st or die in a ditch promises that sadly never came to fruition, Matt Hancock had insisted April 30th was when 100,000 tests a day would be happening by and he staked his rather pitiful career on it, with his team privately comparing the end of last month to polling day. And they are both similar, but by older people putting crosses in boxes for the Conservatives in the election last December, it sadly led to more older people being put in boxes with crosses on them than there should be because of the Conservatives. Testing is really important, with South Korea being a prime example of where it worked. The idea is that if the amount of new cases falls below the amount of people being tested, then you can work to contain the outbreak and start lifting the lockdown. Except the UK has consistently been at the bottom of the testing chart. By April the 18th, there were only 5.07 tests per day per 1,000 people, compared to Iceland at the top of the chart doing 115.07 tests per day. Sure, there are only 115.07 people in Iceland, so that's probably not that hard, but five and a bit out of a thousand per day for the UK really isn't trying. How do you only do like a 0.7 of a test? Is that where you start a test and then halfway through go, ah, this isn't worth it, you don't deserve it, fuck it, let's just guess. Not only that, but by the end of March, Deputy Chief Medical Officer and Edna Mode cosplayer Jenny Harries said that mass testing was not appropriate for the UK, which is odd as that's always been the opposite of what the Education Department has said for the last 10 years. To be fair, while countries like Germany have managed very quickly to do a lot of daily testing, that is because they have a lot of diagnostics industries and medical technology, compared to the UK's underfunded NHS, with pathology labs on less test tubes than Boris Johnson's freezer in prep for when he needs a few more weeks off in nine months' time. So in order for lots of tests to happen, the country has needed new mega labs with automation handling the kits as they're returned. And then there were issues with getting tests from people to the robots and then back to people again, which resulted in the army stepping in to take and deliver swabs. Because nothing says good bedside manner than a man in full camo gear who's been trained to shoot someone in the face, welding a large cotton bud to stick deep into your nose like you're threatened to do it again if you don't give answers, and then taking those results and giving them to a robot. Actually, that's not fair, as many military staff were taught how to conduct tests in centres by specialists from Boots, which means, if anything, they had to be taught to be even less attentive than they already were, especially if you didn't have a points card. Lots of test centres are held a good distance away from town centres for safety purposes, but it means people, especially busy NHS staff, can't get to them easily, and when they can trek to unused car parks or wherever else they may be held, if it's not army run it might be Deloitte or Serco who are famous for failing institutions and they'll likely lose your test before you even take it. In an attempt to boost test numbers, the Department of Health changed who was eligible, so you know it would take even longer for frontline staff to get their results. So, symptomatic over-65s could suddenly get tests as nothing would help them feel better from COVID-19 problems than sitting outside Chester World of Adventures as a sergeant uses a Q-tip to launch your tonsils with all the delicate nature of a drunk sledgehammer. Key workers could also get tests, though nothing was said about shoe repairers, but I guess that's because they're often the same person. Huh. <laughs> 
So we're just over 23,000 tests on the 23rd of April and then just over 50,000 tests taking place on April 28th. It seems suspicious that out of nowhere, 122,347 tests all took place on April the 30th, well over the 100,000 daily target. What had happened? Had they changed the definition of test so it meant anything that wasn't a test, like a spoon or a mouse? Well, you were right to be suspicious, well done Columbo, as over 40,000 of the tests had just been dispatched to people at home or hospitals. There's no way of knowing if the people at home had tested themselves properly or not at all, or if the hospitals had carried out the tests that they were sent. It was all just one big single-day effort on account of the government, Amazon and Royal Mail, who distributed them all in order to reach a meaningless number. Thank goodness it was at a time everyone was in, or they might have been a few short. Prime members, of course, got theirs several days earlier. The head of the government testing programme admitted that their government had changed how they counted tests, saying that any test that goes outside the programme is counted as having been done, even if they haven't been, even if they've gone to someone's home and that person has stuck them all up their bum or fed them to a gerbil. The amount of tests being done is increasing every day, but far later than it should have been happening and at a slower rate. In fact, according to the last few days of press briefings, even with the new counted figures, less tests have been taken, so it looks like even getting them sent out for people to put up their bum isn't happening as quickly as they'd like. It was probably silly to have a target for tests in the first place, though silly not to have had this prepped and ready years ago for tests to start happening in January. Still, knowing Matt Hancock and the last 10 years of Conservative governments, they'll just keep changing the definition of things you should lose your job over to meaning that you should still keep your job if, let's be honest, they hadn't already changed it to that quite some years ago. As a comedian, I've died on stage many, many times, and let me tell you, it's not a very fun experience. So, it came as something of a surprise when I spoke to our second guest this week, who deals with actual death on a daily basis, and she is one of the chirpiest people I've spoken to in weeks. Death is something we're all having to confront in this pandemic. Either watching statistics on the daily briefings rise every day, losing people close to you to the virus, or just occasionally wishing for it yourself as you have to do yet another day of endless parenting. While other cultures have had some very sensible views on death, either returning your body to the earth or maybe coming back as a creature that can't use Twitter and therefore has a happier life, the Western world's view of it is still mainly fear, worry, turn the news off and pretend it isn't happening, and if we keep using this skin cream made of rhino hormones, then we'll age backwards and be safe. Anatomical pathology technicians are the NHS workers you might not get to see on the news so much right now, as they work in mortuaries, which year-round is always a dead important job. Sorry, not sorry. So after seeing them tweet about how important it is to recognise the efforts of APT workers, especially during the pandemic, I asked the Association of Anatomical Pathology Technicians if I could talk to someone about how things are right now, and they kindly put me in touch with Gemma Norburn, an APT at Barking, Havering and Redbridge University's Hospitals NHS Trust. I asked her all about how things are, exactly what support there is for people who've lost someone, death cafes, and there was quite a lot of chat about cake. As I said, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by quite how upbeat and nice this interview is. I hope you enjoy. Here's Gemma. Hi, Gemma. Um, the first question I have to ask you, because I know absolutely nothing about what you do. Um, you're an anatomical pathology technologist, I believe. Is that, is that the proper title? Yep, that's exactly what it is, but it's, it's quite easier to shorten it to APT. <laughs> APT, right. So what exactly, like uh, outside of, say, pandemic crisis times, what do you normally do? What does your job usually involve? So um, an APT is basically someone that works in a mortuary. It's, it's effectively like the, the, the fancy healthcare science way of saying mortician. We tend to avoid the word mortician. Um, so I work in a hospital mortuary, but APTs can also work in a local authority or council mortuaries. And we do effectively care of the deceased um, while they're in our care. We do technical support for any pathologists at um, post-mortem and we do viewings and support for bereaved families as well. That's quite a basic list. Uh, there's there's quite probably a longer extensive list I could go into, but it would take me quite a while. Right. OK, so what sort of, uh, I, I mean, you, you still explain that, but what does what kind of hours does that mean? I'm guessing you're working all hours of the day and all times. Generally, we, we do uh, a Monday to Friday, 8 till 4. <laughs> like right, a normal- OK. Um, but we do have an on-call service outside of that because obviously there, there is always going to be things that do happen outside of those normal hours. So, yeah, we, we do on-call and um, luckily it's not incredibly busy generally outside of COVID or pandemic times. Well, that's that's what I was going to ask because, you know, people do die all the time. So I guess it's uh, uh, but it's not overly busy normally. 
Not normally. It's, it's generally said that uh, winter periods are busier than summer periods. Uh, yeah, but other than that, it's not incredibly busy. Right, okay. So in which case, how are things right now at the moment? Is it just the workload that's changed or have other aspects changed uh, about what you're doing as well? Yeah, it's interesting. Oh, there is an obvious increase in the workload. Uh, it's come from various different areas. It's the, the care after death and the caring for the patients that we have is it will always be, and it still is our priority. That's something that we look we deeply care about. Um, but there's a slight difference now with uh, the the kind of relationships that we have with the bereaved families and the relatives because of the lockdown and because the the hospitals also on lockdown. So that's created quite a few challenges we're not able to do the the kind of viewings for families that we 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 like to do um and it is difficult because the families are uh experiencing a a very challenging way of of grieving for for their relatives so i'm guessing a lot of it now has to be uh long distance or i mean it does can people come and visit their deceased relatives at all it's a difficult one not at the hospital not at the hospital. Uh, as part of the kind of end of life care, I believe that they're they're allowing to have one person come in and be with them, which is really good actually, because I think I, I think originally it was that there was no one able to come in. But in terms of uh, viewings for families, we're not able to do them. I know a lot of funeral directors are following the same kind of of thing, um, so it's it's quite difficult. And I know there's a lot of restrictions on the actual funerals themselves now as well. So we do get a lot of phone calls from families where they're quite they're just very concerned because it, it's it's not it's not clear to them exactly what they're allowed to do and they're they're worried yeah that's going to be very very hard indeed and and I guess that also makes your job more stressful having to talk to families uh, about what it is that they can or can't do yeah it is and obviously you're dealing with a lot of very like high emotional situations um which we we do deal with on a day to day basis anyway but it, it's almost um a lot more. A, a greater number of those those conversations are happening and, and in terms of your safety as well is it i mean this is quite a, probably a, a morbid thing to ask really but are, are you just at risk of catching virus from sort of de- dead people as you know say healthcare workers are from patients is that still dangerous it's not obviously considered as dangerous i don't i think it's fair to say um because of the fact that a lot of the reason that the the virus is transmitted is through the the aerosol and the droplets um which we don't come into contact with it's there's certain situations so things like post-mortem we have to be more careful there's uh we do have um like procedures in place for dealing with other things like um it's a it's a very similar line to how we would deal with things like tuberculosis for example so we're we're quite prepared and um they the all the postmortems are still going ahead and we're just taking those those um yeah following those procedures and policies that we have to to kind of consider those situations as as necessary and i'm guessing postmortems are incredibly helpful in us finding out how we tackle this yeah not as much as you might think right it, yeah if generally if someone has covid it's um it's quite evident and it's been noted before they've died um and generally it's yeah postmortems aren't necessarily needed to know that someone has died of of covid right okay so it's not it's not like the the, the work that you have to do afterwards is also then you don't also have to do kind of scientific tests uh, outside of what you would normally do, no, no, right, right. That's probably a, a post mortem is not is not um, absolutely necessary for every single person. Right. Okay. So it's just if something specific has happened. Yeah, it's generally a, a post mortem is required if if it's a unknown um, circumstance um, or suspicious. But obviously, it wouldn't be suspicious as such. But um, so if it's unknown, then we would do a post-mortem. But if not, generally in COVID cases, people, especially if they're from the hospital, it's quite well known that they they've, they have COVID. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, of course. Yeah. And, and are, you know, are you getting the kind of support that you need in your department? You, you sound really chilled. I have to say, when I was sort of contacting you to get in touch, I was thinking, God, you're probably really overworked. And I was worried about trying to cram this in. I have to say, you sound quite calm. Is it all, you know, fr- from your point of view in your area, is it OK? Are, are, you know, are APT workers getting the kind of support that they need at the moment? Yeah, uh, APT 
teas in general, I think I said to you before when we were talking prior to, to the, the like interview today, we're quite cheery people and we're quite kind of, <laughs> we're, yeah, we're probably not how people expect us to be. <laughs> um, a lot of well, people I guess you have that, to be, don't you? You have to be to, to do yeah. what you do. You have to have a cheery disposition, that's for certain. And you, yeah, you have to, I think, be quite positive as well. Um, I think that's fair to say. Um, I, I mean, I, as part of the the hospital trust that I work for, the NHS trust, we have some great support. We really do, and I can't, I, I, I can't thank them enough for the support that we're getting. We have the a system in place where there's a, a few people that are um, being redeployed, like around the hospital. Um, so we have staff coming from the pathology lab to help us out, and they're really, really great. And we've had so many donations of different things and food and stuff and cake i i, I do love cake and we've had lots of cake <laughs> so yeah i i think i i can't we've we have a lot of support in place that's really good I, the cake support is really all you need uh, i'm sure that's what we <laughs> yeah, should be distributing in well, the country yeah we have um i think it, it, it's it's fair to say that most of the time it's not a, a case of even in, in a hospital, it, people don't tend to pop into the mortuary to say hello. Um, but we've had quite a lot of people just checking in on us to make sure we're OK because they, they're aware that we do have this increasing workload. And, uh, yeah, it's been really nice to just have people just kind of just come in and say, are you all right? And bring mainly cake. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I find interesting is, is sort of uh, I, I saw um, – Someone from the or also the AAPT uh, tweeting about sort of recognising uh, workers who you know workers who work in the uh, the mortuaries, and mm-hmm. do you find that is it people sort of reticence about death that that maybe means you guys aren't the workers that we see on the on the news when it's sort of about the NHS and things like that? Is it, it do you, do you think there's still a sort of fear of death maybe that we have as a as a culture that that means that we don't focus on what you do so much? Yeah, completely. I think a lot of people would rather it's out of sight, out of mind. They don't really want to think about it. They obviously know that we, someone must be doing something <laughs> to do with that side of things. But I don't think uh, there are. There's still like a lot of people when I, I tell them what I do. Uh, there's a large group of people that just don't want to know. And I think that's a large part of it is that it's it's hugely important. I feel to recognise the 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 mortuary staff and the funeral directors and the bereavement staff and all of the other people that are involved in, in that side of things in, in the, the key worker recognition that's happening. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing to try and get people to acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I bet it. I mean, I bet it is. It's one of those things that I genuinely can't imagine doing it. I don't know. You know, it's, uh, but, but like you said, you've got a very sunny disposition. And I guess that's, you have to, you know, certain people have a brilliant mindset that can kind of deal with, with things like that. Hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask you because one of the one of the things that you that I know that I know you've worked with or or have worked on are things called deaf cafes, and I I wonder if you could just tell me a bit about what they are and what they mean to people and if you're able to still do them in in our current situation. Sure, deaf cafe is it's a concept that uh, was introduced um, about ten years ago now, I believe. Um, and it, the idea is that you, you gather a group of people in uh, an open space where you can have an open discussion about death and dying. There's, there's no agenda. There's no objectives. You don't have a theme as such. It, it's more just about getting people together and, and forming like a, a natural discussion from people's curiosities and, and different things they want to talk about. And it's, it's not specifically any kind of like grief counselling or um, a bereavement service. It's just um, providing a space for people to go to to talk about what's, as I said before, like kind of considered a, a quite a taboo subject that people don't really always want to talk about. And, and people might feel un, not necessarily uncomfortable talking about, but just not able to speak to, to other people about in general. Um so yeah, I run I run two events per month. Uh, I do run one at the hospital trust where I work, and um, they they do tend to be quite cheery events, which people find always quite strange. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think I yeah I I know that my events we we tend to try and see no, it sounds strange but the lighter side of things as such, and um, there's always cake. A cake is always very important. Um, <laughs> I like the reoccurring cake theme. <laughs> but yeah, we we sit around and and yeah, we have um and chats and eat cake. 
<laughs> but under under lockdown, obviously, that's that's not feasible. Um, so we have been greatly encouraged. People that run different death cafes across across the world really have been encouraged to try and move them across to uh, online platforms um, such as Zoom to try and get, gather people together and still have those discussions. And I think that that's kind of now more than ever those discussions are, are really needed at a time where you see an increase in the number of people dying it's it's really important to try and get people to talk about it yeah absolutely very very important and are, are there sort of other online facilities are there things that people can go to if they do need support in that area i mean uh, the death cafe sound fantastic but i'm guessing there's other there, there must be other things online that people can reach out to now yeah, there's some there's some great bereavement charities out there that um, you you can you can research online and they they have some really good um, support that you can access. The one that comes to mind is the Good Grief Trust, and and they have some really good stuff. Good Grief Trust, brilliant. Um, thank you. So um, I suppose the most important thing that we we should ask. I mean, it's, it's difficult because I was going to say where can listeners go to support APT workers, but I, I feel like you're doing all right. You've got lots of cake. Um, so <laughs> where can cake. they go to send you cake? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but if if people are listening, um, where can they go to to support? Uh, yeah, a, a people who work in the mortuaries, and also just to find out more about the work you're doing and, and understand it. Where would you direct people to? And so as part of uh, being an APT, we have a a, a professional um, group that we have called the the AAPT, so the Association of Anatomical Pathology Technologists, a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we have a website uh, that has some great resources on it and some uh, it has there's some there's a blog on there that has some really good information as well. And there's there's a lot of um, yeah, there's some great stuff on there. They have a Twitter account as well at AAPT tweets which is really good and all the latest kind of news and information will be on there and I believe that on the website you can actually sign up for a newsletter as well so you can get kind of all the latest stuff through that um, and yeah the only other thing I can say is uh, to follow myself on Twitter as well and, and I, I write my own blog as well um, com, where you can kind of see what I get up to on a weekly basis and um, the other thing I would say I think a uh, a lot of um, people, when they hear what I do, are quite interested in how to how to kind of get to do what I do, um, which might sound weird. But some, some people do like the idea of doing my job. <laughs> um, so I'm quite happy to answer any questions about that as well. So if people want to get in touch, you can um, find my contact details on my blog and people can get in touch with me. Thanks so much to Gemma for that. Um, I was going to say for finding time for me in her busy schedule, but after speaking to her, it seems like she's thankfully not too rushed off her feet at all. Um, I should add, if you're a mortuary worker in areas like, say, London or Birmingham, uh, you might have been having a very different and more hectic time uh, during the pandemic, which I understand. And please do feel free to write in and let me know if you are or maybe aren't and are currently very happy in a basement full of cake. I do very much hope it's the latter. You can find Gemma on Twitter at uh, MortuaryGem, G-E-M, and her blog at MortuaryGem.com. The Association of Anatomical Pathology Technology, which is uh, brilliant to say very, very fast, Association of Anatomical Pathology Technology, um, which is the professional body for APT staff within the NHS and public mortuaries and something that more rappers should include in their lyrics. Uh, They can be found at AAPTUK.org or on Twitter at AAPTTweets. Gemma's NHS Trust is Barking, Havering and Redbridge University Hospital which you can find at bhrhospitals.nhs.uk and the Good Grief Trust are the goodgrieftrust.org or Good Grief Trust on Twitter too. Of course, if you have ideas or suggestions for who or what or where, no, not where, we're not allowed outside, sorry. So just who or what about I should talk to someone for doing and that. Uh, wait, hang on. Uh, who I should talk to or what about. There you go. Got there in the end. Uh, then drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could try, like Kanye West, a therapist pinata of a man, to communicate your ideas to me only in beeps instead of words. And everyone will think that lockdown has caused you to believe you're R2-D2 and keep pressing your face until a picture of Princess Leia appears. Except they won't be able to because of social distancing. You'll be safe for a while. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? <laughs>
And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for still listening to the show and somehow making it all the way to the end. And because you did, it's big reward time for you, buddy. Yeah, that's right. It's just for you, big enders. That's still not right. I think I've said that one before. It's still not good. Anyway, then at this point in the show, I get you some hot poll goss facts. And this week, as the Maybank holiday has changed from Monday, May the 4th to Friday, May the 8th, cast your mind back to 2011, when the coalition government tried to move the Maybank holiday to the following Friday in order to skip it being on Workers' Day and instead call it UK Day you know, to celebrate all the best things in the UK so we can still remember what they were as each of the next 10 years were spent dismantling them. One of the main Tory MPs proposing this was MP for Romford, Andrew Rossendale, looking like someone forgot to dust Greg Wallace's head. There's lots of reasons Rossendale shouldn't be allowed to decide on such matters, including a career of overclaiming expenses. But the main reason uh, is that, did you know, Rossendale's parents were allegedly kidnapped by a bank holiday when he was four. So it's just too close for him. Too close. On a bank holiday, you can apparently find him running around at night dressed in his work clothes, shouting at any buildings that are closed. He'll be doing a lot of running around this year then, won't he? Ha! Take that, Andrew. So there you go, a very long and hugely unnecessary hot pole goss fact this week. Uh, and if you enjoyed that or hated it, but in a way that made you feel alive again, then please do tell others to listen to this show, share it on your socials, review it on the podcast apps, and throw a few pounds to the Kofi.com or Patreon. Um, gratitude buckets for Acast who hosts this damn thing. My brother, the last sceptic who gets older this week officially, so please do give him some birthday love. Uh, to Cat Day who does all the linear liner notes for the website, and to Mushy Bees and her amazing art skills. This will be back next week when it turns out that a glitch on Matt Hancock's test track and trace app finds incorrectly that the Isle of Wight is a hotbed of coronavirus and it's made into the British version of Spinner Longer and they get isolated from the rest of the UK for three years. Luckily, no one there notices much. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by the Department of Health's Ultimate Lockdown Survival Kit, containing six pieces of ultimate rations to get you through your time stuck at home. The six items include the box it comes in, the plastic packaging inside, the bubble wrap inside that, a pack of silica gel, and two individual fingers of Twix. Six individual pieces of survival kit from the Department of Health, providing exactly what you need and ask for, so don't question it. Why would you question it? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.